0: Hello, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and I welcome you to Folk University's Friday Folk U Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM. Just a reminder, you can get all of our old shows um, at the... CKTZ website, which is CortezRadio.ca, and you can also find them on CortezCurrents.ca. This month we have been doing a special partnership with Friends of Cortez Island, also known as Folk Eye. Folk you and Folk Eye. We have to do partnerships. The partnership has been called Nature is Good for You. So you can find really nice quality podcasts for this entire month, including some special things from today on the Friends of Cortez Island website, which is friendsofcortez.org. So lots of ways to find us. Are you wondering what is Folk University? It is an experiment in slow learning. It is a question. Can we create a more resilient and enjoyable community simply by sharing what we already know with each other? Folk University is an opportunity. It's for neighbors to share our ideas, our interests, our skills, and our passions with each other. And it is the only university where nobody ever graduates. Today, I am really excited to welcome Sobana, today to the radio to talk a little bit more about something we introduced last week, which is forest therapy. I am also trying something brand new today where our speaker Sobana is entirely doing the show on the phone. So we are all going to see right now whether I have successfully managed this crazy operation. Um, And if she's here with us, Sobana, are you here with us? (laughs)
1: Amanda I'm here can you hear me I can
0: hooray I have to take moments to celebrate my successes (laughs) (laughs) excellent So thank you so much for being willing to to join us in this slightly strange format. Um, we're all getting used to slightly strange formats in the time of COVID, but it's also been a really exciting time to get to try out new ways to interact with each other. So thank you, Sobunov, for being part of the experiment.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Amanda. Thank you to you and to POCAI for the invitation.
0: So today, you're gonna talk to us a little bit more about something called forest therapy. Will you tell us what that is?
1: Sure, so um, forest therapy is a Japanese-inspired healing practice of bathing in the atmosphere of the forest to receive its medicinal and therapeutic benefits. So the term forest therapy is used almost synonymously with the term forest bathing, um, which is more commonly known and that is a translation of the Japanese term, shinrin-yoku. So the practice originated in Japan in the 1980s. Um, It's often referred to as the ancient art of forest bathing, but actually this particular practice originated in the 1980s. Um, When Japan was experiencing a technology boom, a mass urbanization, people were starting to spend a lot more time indoors. Um, and at desks, not um, as much outside in their bodies. and So um, the society experienced uh, a significant increase in stress levels, cancer, autoimmune diseases. And um, the, the Japanese government noticed this and, and began a, a research program to try to address the health crisis. And one of their research questions was, what happens to human beings when we spend extended periods in forested environments? So what they found was a whole host of benefits. And um, most notably when we bathe in forested environments, we um, we experience a bathing in the in something called phytoncides. So trees, as a way of protecting themselves from, from harmful insects and germs, they emit something called phytoncides, um, which which affect us as humans when we when we bathe in them. So Because we have evolved with nature and in the company of trees through millennia, when we bathe in these phytoncides, they stimulate the creation of a special type of white blood cell in the body, in our body, called natural killer cells, or NK cells. And these NK cells have uh, proven to boost our immune function and help us fight um, certain cancerous cells and viruses in the body. Um, and there's also been quite a bit of uh, research to show other health benefits, such as reduced stress levels, um, you know, lower cortisol, lower heart rate, blood pressure, and a greater activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. So, um, so research is, is you know, really starting to show some of these things in a very um, scientific way. But beyond that, we just know, I think everyone on Cortez knows, we just feel good. When you spend time, when you spend a day in the forest, you just feel better. Um, there's you know, incredible evidence to show greater um, mental health and well-being. So the practice can balance mood disorders and it can also inspire um, heightened creativity and intuition and just general emotional well-being. And, and, and for me, the practice also holds great spiritual benefit and I'll, I'll maybe talk about that later um but i did want to just mention that i trained with an organization um called the association of nature and forest therapy and that school has its own sort of model of forest therapy and it was inspired by the founder of... sorry oh it was
0: yeah keep going you're doing great
1: <laughs> okay so um so Amos um in was um the founder of this School of Forest Therapy and um, he came to it from a background of wilderness guiding, um, he, he spent a lot of time doing you know, vision, vision fast and social repair work in his, um, in his communities, and he brought that together with ex- his experience of Shinrin-yoku in Japan and came up with a very unique model um, which includes a sort of relational focus to the practice. So the sort of underlying philosophy of the ANFT is that um, most people in our you know modern day society we've been conditioned to think of nature as something separate from us, and this practice in the way that that the guides are trained to sort of lead the practice helps to dispel that delusion and can and that itself contributes to a very deep healing, um, and it's it's rooted in you know the sort of unconditional love and reciprocity that nature embodies so for me this is a great you know spiritual benefit and it's what nature poets and sages have been pointing to since the beginning of time that you know when we can come into um, our into a experience of the present moment and sort of shut off the discursive mind wondrous things start to happen. And that's really sort of a, tr- uh, um, a true healing of mind, body, spirit.
0: I'm particularly drawn to um, the language that I think you just used, which was the social repair work aspect of, mm-hmm. of the founder. And um, that's really resonating with me because I think if I thought about forest therapy, um, or to the extent that I have thought about forest therapy, it was really about kind of the personal meditative aspect, not so much uh, that really beautiful relational idea that you're discussing.
1: Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something it's interesting, because now in this in this time of, um, you know, social distancing and the pandemic, we are making adaptations to the practice um, so that you know people can have some access to it. But really, um, a guided forest therapy walk is very much a group practice, and so it really embodies this kind of relational aspect. Um, I've created a, a little recording for um, folks on Cortez to practice. Um, it's a guided walk recording that you can take, you know, that you can download, take into the forest with you, and experience something similar to what a guided forest therapy walk would look like. And in, in, in place of having the group sharing that we usually do, um, I, I've suggested kind of sharing with beings in the forest, which is, which is a big part of it too. But the, the guiding sort of principle is that um, we have lost, we have, we have a broken relationship with the natural world. And I think, um, you know, many people can understand that looking at the climate crisis, um, just looking at the ways that we live today, uh, we have we have um, lost our our deep inherent connection to nature. And this practice for me really kind of reawakens that relationship. And we start to not only feel the connection, but we start to realize we are also a part of nature. You know, we we always have been humans are a part of the natural world. And that's why in the forest therapy school we talk about. It as the more than human world, because the natural world actually it includes humans, you know. And so, this this you, through these kind of very simple sensory practices, we start to kind of feel feel and I would say know on a, in an intuitive way that we are made up of the same elements as the natural world around us, and we develop a sort of relationship with nature that is. Um, is much more um, based, rooted in kind of principles of, of love and reciprocity, kindness um, that influence and affect you know, all of our other relationships and the way that we treat you know, the more than human world as a society. So that was, I think, one of the, the major motivations and inspirations for Amos is because he had been working with restorative justice and social repair work in his communities. They used something um, a, a, a model called the Way of counsel and um, it involved, you know, circle sharings, uh as a form of of um, communication, real healing, and working through trauma and so on. And this is this has been brought into his model of a guided forest therapy walk, where after each invitation that we do in the walk, the group comes together and we have um, like a circle sharing. And it's purposely very, um, we're trained to be very omnipartial. And so um, we don't try to fix anything. We don't try to fix, you know, like oftentimes people can have very, uh, you know, things can come up on a walk um, and they can have periods of real release. And we just try to bear witness in a similar way. In, in a sense, we're, we're we're sort of trying to, to relate the way that nature relates to us. So you know what it feels like when, if you're feeling grief or if you're feeling any sort of negative emotion and you go into the forest, you feel better, but it's not like the forest told you you know, how to solve your problem. Well, some, sometimes it can, actually. <laughs> sometimes it can lead to intuitive insight. But really what it's doing, it's just, it's just bearing witness with, with unconditional love. And that's like, that's really what I feel is the healing aspect at at the deepest level. You know, there's obviously the science of the health of the body and so on. But at the deepest level, it's reconditioning um, our relationship to life, essentially.
0: That's so beautiful. Uh, Sobhna, tell us a little bit about your story um, and what got you interested in this to begin with.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because it has its origins on Cortez Island. <laughs> I am currently living in Victoria. I just moved here in November. But um, a couple of years ago, while I was living on Cortez, I was working at Hollyhock and and uh, Amos Clifford, uh, who I just spoke about earlier, uh, was coming to deliver a workshop uh, or retreat, retreat at Hollyhock called the Council of Waters and Trees. So the name just kind of. You know, piqued my interest and I attended his um, he was offering a presenter evening to the community which I attended and um, it was really interesting for me because I've always loved, loved nature and I've always experienced it I've been a meditator for many years so my inclination was always to um, spend my time in nature in a very meditative way Um, but I didn't, when I, I remember feeling when I met Amos and heard him speak about this practice, like, oh, there's, there's a name for this. And I had heard of forest bathing before, but I, and it seemed you know, fairly intuitive to me that you would just spend time in the forest in a sort of quiet way. But what, what really impressed me was, um, Amos spoke about, so he, he had been um, as I said, he was a wilderness guide, and he he um, you know, did a lot of wonderful work in the world. And he was tending this forest grove, I believe it was in Sonoma County or somewhere in california. and um, and he would communicate with the trees, you know, which which I think for Cortesians, that's not such an unusual idea <laughs> for most people in the world, it would be, but the idea that we would speak to the trees, ask them for, you know guidance or or, um, you know, have some sort of a dialogue. And so he was engaging with the trees and what he heard them say at one point was that they were thankful to him that he was, you know, taking care of them. And He was, at that time, I, I think he felt very much that how we can protect nature is to keep people out of it, you know, <laughs> to just keep humans away from it as much as possible. Um, but what, what, to his surprise, the trees told them was that they, they wanted him to bring more humans to experience this um, nature in a different way. And so um, it really kind of, his story kind of struck me. And what also struck me was that he had developed this very unique sequence um, to a forest therapy walk, like a, a specific um, set of what we call invitations um, to lead people into um, a certain state of being, where they can really um, receive the maximum benefit of their time in the forest. He ha- also had um, a Buddhist background, which I do as well, and so um, a lot of his, uh, a lot of what he was saying resonated, and so it's, it sort of piqued my interest. And I had a conversation with him the next day um, at Hollyhock, and it sort of set a series of things in motion and in the Forest Therapy School we talk about these as earth dreaming so um, the idea is that the earth sort of dreams things into being for humanity for the, the, the benefit of humanity so the whole idea of forest bathing was an earth dreaming and people sort of catch these earth dreamings. so Amos caught the dreaming and then he created the ANFT and then guides all over the world have also sort of caught this this thing, dreaming. And, and we each catch first dreamings in different ways. And so it might be that we catch a dreaming to be more, um, play a more activist role or to be a writer or to be, you know, to work in policy. It could be all different things. But this is the moment. It was one of those serendipitous moments where I felt like I caught this dreaming and it really has changed um, my experience. It's really changed my experience of life. Um, And there's a whole, there's a really beautiful community as well of um, forest therapy guides around the world who are sort of uh, very like minded and in this principle that the way that we can help the world, the way that we can um, help solve this climate crisis, is to really go down to the underlying roots of it, which are very much um, rooted in our relationship to to the world around us. So, um, yeah, and so I uh, signed up for the, the ANFT offer at, at, before this time of um, pandemic, the ANFT was offering guided training around the world. So actually did uh, my training in uh, Victoria uh, last year and then did a period of, we you do a, a period of like a, a six-month practicum uh, where you have... You know, series of kind of assignments and so on, and there's a whole school to it. And so, yeah. So it and it all started on Cortez. And I should say that even before I met Amos, um, Cortez was really my guide and my teacher in some ways. That um, I really experienced before I knew what it was called. Um, I experienced the real benefits of this practice um, just by you know, bathing in the in the beautiful wild forest that Cortez offers and the ocean. You know, it's really nature. We talk about forest bathing, um, but of course this extends to all of nature. There's incredible healing power. So, um, yeah, and I, I wanted to kind of share this. I First of all, I wanted to deepen my own understanding through the training, but also to be able to share this practice with others because I feel um, it is, uh, it is the way that I um like to relate to the climate crisis these days um it's full of hope and it's full of um kindness and equanimity which is which are things that I think are very difficult to cultivate in the face of you know the things that we're facing in the world today so that's a bit about the story
0: <laughs> that's beautiful um It reminds me of some of the, the reading uh, I've been doing and some of the things I've been curious of recently. Um, One of which is, and I don't know if you've uh, ran across this uh, man, but Robert McFarlane, who Mm -hmm. uh, recently published a book called the understory. And there's Mm -hmm. sort of an excerpt from this in emergence magazine. I'll put it in our program notes. Um, Uh And in part, what he's exploring through that is this idea of a wood-wide web. Mm, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and what we're what what this what researchers and scientists are discovering is that trees, how deeply interrelated the forest is. Um, for instance, when one of like when one of the creatures in a forest, one of the trees. Um, is sick or under stress they can actually send out their nutrients through an underground Mm -hmm. system um, that co-joins through their roots and this like tiny little um mitochondrial networks called hyphae Mm -hmm. and they go through the soil and they can They can share their nutrients. Uh, So, for instance, nursing sick trees back to health, or if a tree is Mm -hmm. dying, send out their their nutrients to other trees. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just this incredible... Uh, experience and some of some of what they've learned actually started in the 1990s with a Canadian forest ecologist called Suzanne Simard, um, yeah. who was studying in BC and um, logging in logged temperate forests in BC. Uh, and so, mm. when you're speaking about the kind of humans as part of this natural system and all the healing that we can receive, I think, wow, it's almost like it's just an extension of the same idea of how we can heal each other.
1: It's so true, Amanda. And I think that's really at the root of the philosophy behind this practice is that, you know, and and that humans actually have the same network, you know, that we are connected wherever we are in the world as a species and to nature, and that whatever happens, uh, you know, in one part of one forest affects all parts of all forests, and similarly, whatever happens to one part of one society affects all societies, you know, so, and, and that works in, you know, many ways, I know it, yeah, this practice has really sort of changed the way that I see that interconnection, just even on a practical level. Like, I recently traveled um, to Portugal, and, you know, but in the past, when I traveled, you know, you notice kind of cultural differences, you notice, you know, different foods, you you really are, like, interested in in the people. And I noticed, like, I was most interested in the different trees there, <laughs> which is which is you know I, I attribute to this practice. And and what I found is you know because now that I've been doing this practice for in a very intentional way for a while, whenever I need a new tree, I I try to communicate in some way. And when I say communicate, it's it's more like a heart based you know like empathetic kind of communication. And And I felt that sense, you know, in a non, I couldn't communicate it in words necessarily, but you know, in the beautiful like eucalyptus, olive trees, these like giant cork oak trees, they, they were singing a similar song and it had like a different, you could say it had a different melody, but they were singing an, an ancient song that, and I would say the same is true of humans. You know, we are connected in in, in such profound ways, and our, our cultural conditioning has sort of tamed um, tamed parts of us that uh, in in a detrimental way, I would say. And that's why you know when we're in nature, we we have a break from that conditioning. From that cultural conditioning, and we can come back to our true nature, which is really un, undisturbed. You know, it takes a while to settle in and really kind of let go of, of the world outside. But that's what the power of this practice is, is, that through this series of invitations, it brings us into our senses, into the body, such that we're, we're in the present moment, essentially. And that's where that's where we all feel well regardless of your conditioning or your experience in life or what's going on around you. If you can just abide in the present moment, it's incredibly healing and, and you and you can be full of, of well being. And that's the way I mean, this is the way I experience nature. I should say that like you know, when I look at the things that disturb humans and let's say people who care about the environment, you know. It can lead to a great deal of distress and anger and frustration. But I've never had that feeling from a tree. Like I've never Mm -hmm. felt, even though humanity is, you know, assaulting these beings on a regular basis, I've never felt that a tree was angry or frustrated. It's just, you know, it's just offering this Example of how we can be in the world and bring all of our goodness um, in a very unconditional way, and be equanimous also to the 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 changing nature of you know the conditioned world.
0: That's beautiful, thank you. Um, So this makes me wonder a little bit more about the difference between a forest therapy walk and just a walk in the woods
1: right yeah it's a good question we usually start off our walks um with a bit of an explanation about that because um, people have many different ways of experiencing nature and they're all wonderful you know but we make a point of noting that a forest therapy walk is it's not a hike um where we might have you a particular destination we might want to get exercise those are all good things but this is something different it's also not a naturalist walk where you know we're, we're very intentionally trying to learn about the different elements of the forest and their attributes and their even their medicinal qualities you know we even though we give a bit of this background to forest therapy participants when we're actually in the walk, it's meant to be entirely experiential, right? So we're trying to actually um, hush the <laughs> discursive mind that is you know, overly conceptual because that's part of what contributes to the stress, right? So, um, so a foresightly walk is very sensory-based. Um, we're feeling the forest. Through all of our senses and, and the ANFT interpretation of senses is much broader than just the five, um, the five senses. And so, and the other unique aspects is that it's very intentionally slow and quiet. So we're mostly in silence other than the um, opportunities for sharing um, and we slow way down. And so it's quite meditative in that way. It's also very playful, and I think this is an important point that um, about a forest therapy walk that's quite unusual. So the one thing I would say is if you go on a, a forest bathing walk in Japan, it would be a very different experience than a walk guided by an AMFT guide. So in Japan, it would be probably more, from what I've heard, it would be more health-focused. You might meet a doctor before you go on the walk who will test you know, certain indicators, health indicators, Then you go on a walk. It still is very sensory-based. And then you come back and um, and test those indicators again. And um, in a ANFT walk, we include invitations that um, encourage the development of this relationship with nature. So um, you'll see if any if you participate in the um, in the record or listen to the recording. You'll see that there's some invitations that are quite playful, and that and that's very intentional. Like, oftentimes, I find when I when I lead a walk, people will say, "Oh, I felt like I was a little kid," you know, and and little kids can do it, but it's also it's also targeted to adults because we have lost, in some ways, that sense of play that is so integral to health and well-being, and that lightheartedness. heartedness um, and so uh, so so. There's that relational aspect built in. There's also a real focus on reciprocity. So, at the end of the at the end of a typical forest therapy walk, we we have a tea ceremony. So the guide will prepare beautiful tea ceremony with usually with um, plants or um, yeah plants that have been foraged through the walk, um, and then we have the sharing. And before we before we take the tea, we offer the tea the earth we offer a cup to the earth and we offer you know our gratitude and and there's a real emphasis on that so it's it's a a a guided walk is quite different than even a guided hike or a guided naturalist walk in that way and there's there's a a standard sequence that we follow which has um which every anft guide is trained in so if you there are over 700 guides in, I think, over 50 countries all around the world, um, who have been trained by this same organization. So you'll you'll find a, a similar sequence, although there will be some varieties in the in the actual invitations. Um, yeah, and I can I can talk a bit more about the standard sequence if you like. We have time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, do you want to do that yeah. now? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so essentially. We start off with a basic int- introduction to what the practice is, bit of the science, and so on. And then we have um, uh, an invitation. And when I say invitation, I, I'm using this word invitation a lot. That's part of the um, guiding philosophy of the ANFT is that everything we do is very invitational, meaning that nothing is overly prescriptive. We're not, we don't consider ourselves to be the teachers. We feel that the forest is the therapist, and the guide's role is to simply open the door. So um, we start off with with um, an invitation called "Pleasures of Presence," um, which you'll you'll um, see in the recording, and that's sort of a, a sensory-based meditation um, where we kind of tune into the senses in in nature, and. Uh, and that helps to kind of just like calm the mind. down. We do that stationary in one place, usually sitting or lying down. Um, and then we do that. That's about you know twenty thirty minutes. Uh, then we do an invitation called uh, "What's in Motion," and this has been a really interesting invitation for me. It seems really simple, but when you actually practice it, it can be quite transfer transformative. Um, and it we in the in what's in motion in a guided walk the guide will set the pace and set a very intentional slow pace and some people have a lot of trouble with this if they're if they're used to kind of rushing through their lives it can be quite anxiety producing but you settle into it after a while to just walk really 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 slowly and the simple invitation is to notice what's in motion around you And I'd encourage anybody, even if you don't listen to the recording, to just try this um, when you're in the forest to just slow down, really slow down and um, tune everything out except to notice what's in motion. And it can be very soothing, a soothing exercise It really kind of if you're if you're if you have a lot of like mental activity and you're or you're overthinking something. This is a really simple way to just kind of ground down and and get, get back your focus, you know. Um, so we do that, and at the end of those um, two invitations, the idea is that we have brought people into uh, something called liminal space. And so as guys were trained, um, and this is probably the most interesting part for me about a forest therapy walk is that um, with the support of the natural world, of more than human world, we um, and you know tuning into our senses, we come into a, a sort of an altered state of, of being, which in this school and in you know some psychologists have called it liminal space, and it's the idea that we've crossed one threshold from the reality that we once knew, into this sort of holding place before we've gotten to the place of integrating a new reality. So it's this kind of like middle place that is full of possibility. It's where it can be quite, um, uh, like we don't quite know what's what's happening, what's what's left or right or what's up or down. Everything is um, held in this kind of place of not knowing, but we're, we're beneath our thoughts in some way. So this is a place, um, I won't get too much into it because this is like one of my favorite topics, but um, it's a place where humans can experience that sense of timelessness and and I would say, deep bliss and peace, um, which is beneath our everyday thinking mind. And in that place, beautiful things can emerge. It's the place where transformation can happen. And so, um, so the idea of the first two invitations is that they slow us down enough that and and bring us into the body, bring us into the senses, so that we can come into this place of liminal space. And as guides, we have to have sort of one foot in that liminal space too, because that's the space where intuition um, is born, and that's the space where um, we hear what the forest is speaking to us through, you know, through our hearts. So in that space, once we've brought guided people into that space, then we sort of pass the baton over to the forest as the therapist. So at that stage, we start what are called the partnership invitations. And in partnership invitations, what what we mean by partnership is we are partnering, the guide is partnering with the forest to intuit what kind of invitations would be most appropriate to bring about the best. Uh, or the most appropriate medicine for the individuals on the walk, and so it's very much. This is one thing that's different in a guided walk. You know, I, I have suggested some invitations, but on a real, uh, like on a on a real um, guided walk where I'm there with you, or where a guide is there with you, <clears throat> they will be they will be um, intuiting uh, what is needed in the moment. It, and the idea is that the, part, that the forest is telling them what to do. <laughs> and so it's, um, so we've made an adaptation for these times of social distancing, but that's the benefit of a group walk with a, with a lead guide, uh, with a guide leading walk, um, in, in that they're, um, they're, they're, they're guiding this process in a very intuitive way. And so oftentimes we'll go in with a plan and then the forest will tell us something totally different and and we're trained to learn how to tune into that and go with it and what always amazes me is um, at, when we do these partnership invitations so there there are simple prompts like um, like to, to engage in the forest with our through our senses so that could be through the sense of touch sometimes we can just invite people to go to follow their nose wherever it goes <laughs> and to just follow the sense of the forest or to follow plays of light in the forest Um, it could be to to go and actually just sit with a tree and um, you might be holding a question like a question that's deeply troubling you um, to just sit with that tree and see if the tree has anything to say about the matter there's like endless variations to these partnership invitations and the ideas and they're done solo so I give the group a prompt and then they go out and do it for twenty minutes, come back and share. And what's so beautiful is I've seen this time and time again in, in the few guides the few walks that I've guided and also walks that I've participated in that other guides have led, is that everybody comes back with something different. Everyone and it shows how uniquely conditioned we are as humans. We need very different medicines, you know, but the forest has them all. And it brings them about in a way that's unique to each individual. That's why we leave that part <laughs> to the forest and we just, we give these very open invitations. And then, so we do a couple of those depending on the length of the walk. And then at the end we prepare a beautiful tea ceremony this kind of comes back to the Japanese Japanese roots of the practice um, where we, we make a tea with foraged um, plants and so like I'll often use either salal or, or at this time of year, it's beautiful to do it with the conifer tips. Um, I haven't suggested that in the recorded walk because there are some um, some plants and uh, that are not uh, safe for people to consume. And so, just to kind of take that out of the equation, I've just con- I've just suggested that people bring a, a thermos of tea with them. But if you do have that knowledge and you're doing the guided walk, um, I would suggest. Um, the the tips. My favorite is the tips of grand fir trees are so um, aromatic and medicinal and and tasty. <laughs> so <clears throat> you wouldn't want to take too much off any one tree because they're, uh, you know, it's the new growth of the trees. So you want to be respectful when foraging. Um, but uh, what I'll often do is take um, either some tips or just the needles if it's not, you know, the the tip time of year, and uh, I'll cut them with scissors so that the oils sort of come out more, and put them in a, a hot thermos of water, and it, and then so we we share this tea at the end, share kind of what we've experienced in the walk, um, anything we'd like to share with the natural world, and I usually end with some sort of offering to the natural world, like like a poem, like a poem that celebrates nature or. Something, something along those lines. So that's sort of the standard sequence. There's lots of variations and guides bring their own, you know, their own inclinations to it. So my interest in this practice is very spiritually oriented and so I, I will bring in perhaps more meditative um, aspects. Um, but, uh, you know, each guide really makes it their own, but this standard sequence is genius to me. And I really, I credit Amos and the guides around him who, who created this because it brings people into that liminal space where the transformation can happen, allows them to to partner with the forest to get their unique medicine, and then brings them out of it in, in in a way that inspires integration into daily life. And it's, it's so, um, so inspiring. The other thing I would say about liminal space, um, because my, as I said, it's my favorite topic. Uh, is that I really think, like just like you were saying earlier, Amanda, about how the relationships between the forests and trees are um, are a metaphor for our relationships as humans. I also think that this sequence um, and the, the 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 part about liminal space is very very. Um, applicable to what we're experiencing right now with this pandemic. Um, we have sort of left one reality and we're in this place of not knowing, you know, how things are gonna unfold, not knowing how long this will be, not like just this place of not knowing. And when we emerge from this, we'll be in a new reality. And I think the wisdom of the 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 force therapy walk model, if I can, if I can sort of extrapolate is that this space, this liminal space that we're in now as a planet holds vast possibility and it holds the potential for us to intuit a whole new way of being as, as humans, you know, um, and as, as, um, part, as stewards of this earth, I would say. And part of that process will be rekindling this relationship with the more than human world in whatever ways we can do that. So it's, um, I, I say that as a message of hope because I know people really struggle these days with this uncertainty and, and the not knowing. But um, you know, I think many people even well before you know the times of forest bathing have known that in the uncertainty of times like this, there's also great potential for transformation, and that's something to feel really positive about.
0: That's such a beautiful take on this time. I really appreciate it. In case you're listening and you're not knowing what you're listening to, you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM. That's Cortez Community Radio. This is Friday's Folk U Talk Show, and we are very, very lucky today to have Forest therapist Sobana here with us to talk a little bit more about this practice. Um, so, that I, I, you, when you brought up this idea that the forest um, is a therapist, and the guy just opens the door, Sobana, I was like, oh, I, I like that um, as an idea, but he didn't really understand it. And then as you walked through, um, the steps and the invitation in detail, I felt like, oh my gosh, I, I deeply want to experience this liminal space. <laughs> and it does feel right. Almost otherworldly, um, mm-hmm. this time and all the potential that this time then holds. So I like that mm-hmm. seed of potential that you're planting within us. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- can you tell us a little bit more, um, about how, how that, how, how this practice has changed you, how this seed has grown within you in your own life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I've i always loved nature. And I grew up, you know, as a little kid, I, I grew up playing out in the forest. And so it's it sort of, it felt, it feels natural to me. <laughs> um, and I, I always loved experiencing it in a meditative way. I've been a meditator, a Buddhist practitioner for um several decades now, and and really always the Buddha himself, you know always used to praise um, the conditions that the the forest offers for um, for spiritual practice and for liberation. Um, but I think what I've what's really changed for me from from the specific practice of forest therapy is this relation relational aspect. So, as I said you know in the past when I traveled I didn't I might have noticed the beauty of trees um, but I wouldn't have uh, like interacted with them in the same way that I do now and it's not just trees you know it's plants it's it's um, rocks it's every it's other humans it's a it's a different um, it's a really different way of being in the world and and I've found tremendous benefit from it so Apart from the the general kind of healing benefits that we've talked about, I think for me it's really awakened this intuitive um, aspect. So as guides, we have to kind of cultivate that um, ability to partner with the forest in this practice. And so it's awakened. I think we all have that potential, but we we probably um, we underestimate our ability to communicate with. With the, natu- the more than human world, I know it felt very uncomfortable for me at the beginning um, when we, you know, were encouraged to to talk to the tree and, and try to intuit what it's saying. Back, I felt like I was making it up in my head. <laughs> you know, that, that's often how we doubt ourselves when we're we're cultivating our intuitive capacities. Um, but the more that I did it, the more I realized, like, no, this is this is. This is a very natural process, and it's also—I'm not making it up because there are insights that come forward that I couldn't have possibly thought of, you know, on my own. And I feel um, I don't really need to know what's happening; I just know that it works. You know, I just know that that when I when I tune into a being from the more than human world and try to have a conversation, it responds, and we have, uh, and and there are insights from that. Interaction. So I do that a lot more now, just as a matter of like I don't think about it, I don't consciously do it, um, but it just it's just the way that I move now in in terms of the world around me. It also strangely enabled me um, to leave uh, a more wilderness kind of uh, place. Like I, you know, I was I think I would say. I think it's safe to say I'm a bit attached to nature. <laughs> I, I really would always prefer to be in wilder settings and um, and didn't want to leave Cortez and was a bit, you know, weary wary of what that would bring. And I still think I, I would prefer to be in a kind of more forested environment, but I've i I've started to I've started to notice how Everywhere we go, we are we are surrounded by nature and the more than human world, and we are made of the same elements. So it's enabled me to be in the world, um, I would say in a more equanimous way. Um, the other thing I would say is, it's really influenced my, my work in the world. So now I, I'm working in environmental policy, and I, I have done that, I did that in the past as well, before my years on Cortez, and I remember, this moment. So after I be after I started the training, um, Amos Clifford and a, and another lovely guy named Christy Thompson. They usually come to Hollyhock every year. So if people in Cortez are interested, I'm not sure what's happening, what's going to happen with the pandemic. But if they do ever come back, I'd str- I'd, I'd really encourage anybody on Cortez to um, sign up for one of their workshops. So they um, they. Had come last year, um, and I participated in this one uh, workshop they led, which was also called Council of Waters and Trees, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk. And it was it was this beautiful experience where, um, I mean, I won't tell you the whole kind of whole experience, but essentially we, one of the main elements was we were asked to um, spend some time with a particular being from the more than human world, and then. We we came back together as a council of waters and trees, and we we literally held a council. So we each spoke on behalf of this being from the more than human world, and I think about that experience um, so often. It was such a beautiful um, experience for me, and because what happened was, you know, you go and you and you it it, it feels sort of imaginative and. Um, you know, playful. But then we came together. So I, I was um, given the uh, being of ocean. So I spent, you know, some days with the ocean, really trying to tune in and and kind of um, be empathized and understand this being from a heart perspective. And others, you know, were salal or like a sorg fern or a whale, like, different elements from the more than human world. And then we came together at the end and we held this council. And I, I can't speak for everyone else, but I can say I was quite surprised the things that came out of my mouth <laughs> in terms of the messages that I was relaying on behalf of, o- of the ocean. And some of them are things that I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't really hold in my own consciousness. I, they weren't things that I would have thought of before. But we held this council, and you know, people were like, it was a very emotional, beautiful release of all of these, um, all of these messages that the natural world was trying to communicate to us. And they're not always messages that we think, right? Like, so we know we know how we know ways that we're harming the environment, and we think, oh, you know, that's where we need to focus. But sometimes the natural world just says, like, I'd like you to sing me a song. You know, or I'd like, you know, like it's that usually the messages that come through are much more heart oriented and and healing in that from that way. Because when you get those things in order, the rest of it works itself out. You know, like when you really develop and cultivate this love of nature, you will protect it because you value it and you understand its importance. And so so I would say that that has now that I'm working actually back in because at the time i remember thinking like oh I, I wish i had had this practice back when i was working on you know for government on environmental policy because we don't you know we don't invite the cedars to our policy tables <laughs> we don't invite the ocean but but i saw the 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 potential of that um experience and how real it is like how now I, I try to invite them, at least in my mind, <laughs> you know, into like the discussions and, 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 and you know specific actions that I'm um, contributing to to help the world, because I trust the wisdom of the natural world much more than anything my mind can concoct, you know and that's where the power of the intuition you know really shows itself that. For lasting healing, for lasting um, healing for the world, it needs to come from that heart-based place. It needs to come from that intuitive place, and it's it's like a, it's such a win-win because you feel good, you don't feel stressed or traumatized or frustrated, um, and it's more effective. I think you know just when you when you when you are intuiting and acting from that heart plate, heart-based place. So I think that's, that's the main way that it, it's changed me.
0: And you mentioned mm-hmm. that um, when you were training that you did that in Victoria. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it oh, takes to become a forest therapy guide? Do you have to be I mean, an intuitive person to become a forced therapy guide?
1: No, no, not at all. Not at all. You don't have to be anything. It's just like the practice. It's, it, you don't have to be anything. <laughs> you just have to be open. <laughs> I'd say that's the only thing is that, um, that you're open to. And there are, you know, like I said, this is more my inclination that I come from more of this place. But um, different guides will have different, you know, areas where, where they will, you know, place emphasis or, or um, focus on, I would say. And um, so the ANFT it's, it's changing a little bit now because of this current state of physical distancing. Um, so the, the training used to be you would do um, a one-week uh, training with a particular cohort of other trainees, um, and those took place all around the world. You, you just you would sign up for the one-week training, and then you have a period of six months uh, afterwards where you're doing a practicum, and the practicum involves um, you have a little sort of a pod of other trainees and a mentor, and you're given monthly assignments and um, and sort of invitations, and then you meet on a monthly basis virtually with your with your mentor, um, and so it's a process of really like there's a real integration of mentorship into the into the um, training, um, and then you have to also do like a wilderness first aid um certification there's different elements so we spend time getting to know the plants of the forest for the um and and their medicines so that we can uh, for the tea ceremony aspect of the forest therapy walk um we we spend time practicing so i led like a few practice walks on cortez um just getting comfortable with the whole um sequence and how it works and and, and you know this notion of partnering with the the more than human world, and you know I would say like I believe that we are all very intuitive we just uh we just may not have cultivated that, so I wouldn't let that uh, that what I was speaking about in terms of you know intuiting that it's it's a process that is very simple you know it sounds some of this all sounds really esoteric and mystical and magical, but that's actually more our nature you know I would I would say that we are we are um, inherently intuitive and magical beings <laughs> but we've just been conditioned out of that so um, so I wouldn't be um, wouldn't be afraid of that at all and I would strongly encourage anybody and you know for people on Cortez I I think you know most people on Cortez would not Would may not well I shouldn't say, this, but my assumption would be that people would think like, why would I pay a guide to take me into the forest when you know I've been living and breathing the forest my whole life and have it you know right at my back door? I would encourage them to experience an actual sort of led walk or um, you know open to the notion of this the the group elements of the practice because. That's something that I under like really underestimated before. That when we do this in group, you know, part part uh, an essential part of healing is um, is this notion of having a witness, and that's sort of built in to the to this process. So, and people on Cortez, I think, would be just excellent at this at this practice. So if anybody is interested, I would check out the ANFT website. So it's available at natureandforesttherapy.org. Um, I'd also suggest, um, the I'd recommend the book that Amos Clifford has published called Your Guide to Forest Bathing. Um, it It's good also if you just wanna practice this on your own, it has some invitations that you can practice on your own in, in nature, um, and if anybody's, you know, interested in learning more. I think that in in these times right now, the ANFT is changing things so that they can continue to offer training in a more virtual way. So I just invite you to um, check check out the website, um, and you can also feel free to email me if you have any questions. It's Sobana S O B H A N A at forestawakenings.com. And I've included those those links um, on the posting on uh, the Folky website, and that's where you can also find uh, the recorded walk. So I don't know, Amanda, if you want to uh, if you wanted to mention the actual website, is it Friends of Cortez?
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's great. So Friends of Cortez um, is doing Friends of Cortez Island has been doing this whole month in series with Folk University and CKTZ. And so there's going to be a, a whole long um, uh, guided forest therapy walk with Sobana on there. And in just a little bit, we're going to get a little taste, a little preview of that. Um, And I and also a recording of today's show and all past shows are available at CortezRadio.ca and on CortezCurrents.ca. So um, you can listen to all these things. I have been finding just listening to your voice very soothing. If you're listening right now and just have tuned in and you're wondering what's going on, you're listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM. This is Cortez Community Radio. This is the Fridays Folk You Talk Show, and we are super, super lucky to have forest therapist Sobana here with us today to talk about this practice. Um, and what we are about to do is to offer um, everyone a little taste of of just a pre recorded version of this. So, um, Sobana, I thought maybe. First, you could tell people um while they're listening to this part where they should be kind of going or thinking about going um mm-hmm. and then maybe just introduce what they're about to listen to,
1: yeah, sure, amanda. so um so I just want to say i i um this is an adaptation of a, of a standard force therapy walk, and so a traditional force therapy walk would be. Um, led by a guide, in, like who's in your physical presence. Um, at, but and now that we're in these times, ANST guides have been offering walks on Zoom, um, so as cl- as close as you can get to being sort of physically together. And they're I was actually quite impressed at how um, effective they are. I did one with my mentor who lives in in Costa Rica and so it was really actually quite beautiful. She was on her video in a Costa Rica forest and I was here in Victoria. There were people in, um, in Europe and all across North America participating and we all would share together on Zoom. So it was quite, it was quite amazing, and if you're interested, there are many of them offering those virtual walks on Zoom, and you can find those on the ANFT website, so I'd, I'd encourage that. But I was trying to, when Helen first contacted me about doing this, um, this show, I was like, oh, how can I give them a, 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 uh, an experiential taste of this? because um, I know that the, the it, it wouldn't be very um, likely that people would have Zoom access in a Cortez forest. <laughs> so I thought, let's do a recording that people can download and take with them into the forest. And if you are doing that, I would suggest that if you have headphones, that you keep one earphone out and one earphone in so that you can hear me, but also hear the sounds of the forest. Um if you're doing it now, while Amanda plays this short clip, and this is a this is a clip of that uh, first part of the walk that I talked about called Pleasures of Presence, which is sort of like a sensory-based meditation. So if you're listening now and you're you're in your house, I would suggest that you turn your radio up loud, uh, maybe go out on your porch, or you could even just sit at your window um, if you, if you have um, if you can look outside at the at the more than human world. Uh, maybe you might even have a plant inside your house that you could kind of sit beside, um, and uh, yeah, just just have a little taste. And I would love if anybody does uh, does listen to the guided uh, walk recording, does practice it in the forest. I'd love feedback because, as I said, this is an adaptation that we don't normally do it in this way. So I'd I'd love to hear feedback on how how it works for folks. And if you have any questions, please please do reach out. Cortez is deep, deep, deep in my heart. And I, as soon as we're permitted to do so, I hope to be back to be bathing in your forest. soon.
0: (laughs) I feel reluctant to um, let you go. This has been so interesting and so incredible. Um, And we, 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 there's all this technology here that I'm trying to figure out as well as, um, uh, yeah. you know, because I was like, oh, I want people to be able to call in and ask you questions, but um, we can't do that just in the most direct way, but people can still Ask questions. One, Sobana has shared her email address. I'll make sure that goes in the program notes. And as always, you're welcome to send your comments, your feedback, your questions to you at FolkU.ca. So that's just the letter U as in university at FolkU.ca. So Do reach out. It's really nice to hear um, always about people's reactions to shows or to to have questions. We've had very, uh, we've been very lucky to have some super detailed uh, question and response happen through the show. So, okay, this is your chance to get comfortable to, um, as Sobana says, to either get out in nature uh, and turn up your radio really loud. Even at the station here, I've got the doors open, the radio is really loud. You can go and sit by the old maple tree by the hall um, or lie down or be on your own porch, um, get comfortable. Anything else that you want to tell people um, to prepare before I turn on the, the recording?
1: No, I think that's good, Amanda, and uh, just enjoy, and uh, I send all my good wishes to everybody on Cortez, and, and much gratitude to you and Helen for organizing this series.
0: Oh, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. So let's see if I can manage the technology part with my forest guides hopefully helping.
2: Friends, now that I've prepped you with some background, we're ready to begin the walk. We're going to start with an invitation called Pleasures of Presence, which will be sort of like a guided sensory-based meditation. We'll be doing this for about 15 to 20 minutes. So I'll invite you to find a position where you feel really settled and comfortable. You may wish to sit on the ground or maybe even lie down on the earth if it feels right to you. And if you're in a place where it feels suitable, You may want to remove your shoes and socks and just let your feet feel the earth beneath you. The key is to just feel very comfortable so your body can relax and ground into the earth as much as possible. You may wish to pause the recording at this time as you find your position and then start again. Once you find yourself in a comfortable position, I invite you to take three breaths. Once again, noticing where you are and how your mind and body are feeling in this moment. Letting go of any thoughts about the past or the future. And just noticing how it feels to be experiencing this moment in this place. If it feels right to you, I invite you to gently close your eyes. And we'll start off by placing our attention on our sense of hearing to notice the sounds of this place where you find yourself. What kinds of sounds do you hear? Perhaps you can notice the sound that's closest to you and the sound that's furthest away. Sounds that may be coming from the human world and the sounds of the more than human world. What is the loudest sound that you're noticing and the quietest? I wonder if this particular forest has its own melody. What do you notice about the song of this place? Next, I'll invite you to shift your attention to your sense of smell, taking a deep inhale and just noticing the fragrance of the forest around you. You may wish to move your head from side to side and notice any changes in the smells around you. You might even want to pick something up nearby and bring it close to your nose for a sniff. I wonder if this particular forest has its own perfume. Now let's tune into our sense of touch. And we'll I invite you to just notice where your body is touching the ground. And in whatever position you're in, just let yourself really ground down into the earth. Just letting go, releasing any tension you may be holding. Feel how the earth is holding you and supporting you with its solidity. And just release into that. Release into the embrace of the earth. And just notice if there's any breeze in the air today. And where that breeze is touching your body. Noticing how it feels. Maybe noticing at the tip of your nostril. I wonder when the air outside turns into the breath inside the body. When does the breath of the body turn into the air outside? Just noticing the sense of touch, tactile sensations, whatever form And now with our eyes still closed, let's go deep into our imaginal sense. I'll invite you to imagine that you're looking down on your body here in this landscape. And that all the trees and plants and creatures of the forest are gathering around you, welcoming you here to this place. Just picturing them in your mind's eye. I wonder if they have some message for you today. Just give your imagination free rein. What messages do these beings have? It's coming through into your heart's knowing. beautiful. Now in a moment, but not just yet, I'm going to invite you to slowly, slowly open your eyes. And when you do, I'll invite you to open your eyes and imagine that you're gazing upon this landscape as if for the first time with fresh eyes. When you're ready, slowly open your eyes And take in the vista just in front of you. Notice the colors. Perhaps you'll notice different shades of green, the blue sky, the brown soils of the earth. Just noticing all the colors. Perhaps you'll notice the plays of light and shadow. Notice what's in motion and what seems still. Notice where your eyes feel drawn and let yourself gaze there for a little while. Just taking it all in and now let your senses open to this experience all at once and just take in the sights the sounds the smells really noticing everything that's unfolding in this present moment let's just stay here in this experience for a few moments simply noticing Lovely. Now I'll invite you to just do a quick sharing without thinking too much about it. Just say one word, speak it out loud that captures what you're noticing in this moment. And say it loud enough that the forest can hear you. What are you noticing? Wonderful. Now I'll invite you to slowly gather yourself back up to a standing position, and we'll then begin our next invitation. Feel free to pause the recording until you're ready. Take your time.
0: You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio, and that was forest therapist Sobana leading us through a guided forest therapy walk. We're all trying new things in this era of COVID, and we're really lucky because we have one of our neighbors, Sobana, who is a forest therapist who put together that forest therapy invitation um, digitally. So there is more to that Um, there's about a half hour total to that forest meditation guided therapy walk. I highly encourage you to download that and use it actually out in the forest. Um, and you can do that on the friends of Cortez Island website, which is friendsofcortez.org. This whole show is also available on cortezradio.ca as well as CortezCurrents.ca. So I hope you'll check out past episodes, listen to this, and also find that Guided Forest Therapy Walk that we are so lucky to have had made for us. We are going to have an opportunity now to listen to a little forest-inspired music, and then we will Have a gardener in the house with us. Miranda Cross is going to join us today to talk a little bit about what you could be doing this week in your garden. So I hope you'll enjoy a little um, forest music that I have put together for you. And I thank you so much for being here today with me.
3: The sacred grove where the waters flow, we will come and go. In the forest, in the summer rain, oh, we will meet again, we will learn the code of ancient ones. In the forest. For the summertime is coming, and the trees are sweetly blooming. shelter on yon high mountain green my love shall be the fairest
4: that the summer sun has seen where you go as he goes
0: Hello, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. We are also on the web at cortezradio.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am really excited now to have in the studio with me Miranda Cross, who's another one of the many talented garden types on, on Cortez. She is an ecological designer and maintenance of of green spaces of all sorts. And one of her areas of expertise that she was just, in fact, doing some more training on today is in wetland restoration. So I thought today she could tell us both a little bit more about wetlands and um, how we care for our soil and water and those particular uh, ecosystems, as well as what she's doing in her garden. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you for being here.
5: Thanks for having me, Amanda. It's a
0: pleasure. So would you tell us just a tiny bit more about your background and, um, and use that as a way to tell us a little bit more about what wetlands are?
5: Sure. Well, I uh, studied biology at UVic, and during that time I became a very passionate gardener, um, mostly due to recognizing... Um, our interdependence on our ecosystems, and wanting to create uh, local sustainability and taking responsibility for my own food production, and trying to reduce my impact on the global systems. And then uh, after university, made my way to Cortez, and uh, have been doing, studying and practicing ecological landscape design, and just last year, um, through my, uh, I'm on the board with FOCI, and we brought... um, Tom Beebe from Kentucky uh, here to Cortez to um, look at opportunities for wetland restoration at Linnea and uh, Tom and I hit it off and I asked him if I could apprentice and so the last year has been a very exciting adventure in learning about wetland restoration and I also have another mentor Robin Anschild, who's um, from Victoria area and I'm also working
0: with her a bit. When I I think sometimes with wetlands, I find they're complicated to talk about because we've often been so eager as humans to develop these areas, um, to either, you know, put in a shopping mall, <laughs> in some cases, luckily not on Cortez, but also uh, they make great soil areas, and we've put a lot of our farmland um, in places, even like Cortez, on these wetlands. So how, when we are looking around um, at a place like Cortez, Quadra, uh, surrounding islands, how do we kind of know where the wetlands once were? That's a great question. Um,
5: Ditches is one of the biggest indicators that there's water that needs to move somewhere. And so a ditch Uh, around, you know, I see them through the forest. Um, One practice I am becoming aware of that they used to do in forestry is uh, when they log an area, they would skid the logs down a a stream and essentially straighten the stream and turn it into a ditch that continues to erode today. So um, farmland, right? Ditches everywhere. So those ditches are designed to lower the elevation of the groundwater and move it off of, the, off of the land as quick as possible. The other thing we look for is hydric plants, like sedges, rushes, sitka spruce, big gold cedar stumps, um, cattails. Though, you know, those are classic wetland plants. And then we would look at the soil, which is a little less obvious.
0: And can you talk a little bit about, like, well, so what's the problem with a ditch versus a wetland?
5: Well, a ditch, as I said earlier, reduces the level of the groundwater. um, And it also would reduce the hydro period of water being on the landscape. So if you think of a wetland as a pie dish, to drain a wetland, you cut through the rim of that pie dish, and then the water would flow out. Or you could think of a bathtub and removing the plug in the bottom of the bathtub, and the water flushes out. So when we look to repair or restore wetlands, we're essentially disabling ditches and uh, digging across some techniques called a core trench. So you dig across the ditch, you repack it with some high clay soil, and then you reshape a basin behind that little... It's like a little... Another word is a groundwater dam to visualize it. Um,
0: and so when the water is... Um, like flowing through a ditch instead of being in a wetland. Um, What happens to the the lakes, the oceans, the water ecosystems then that are no longer having the benefit of a wetland?
5: Right. Okay. So, well, first you have wetland-dependent species, many species at risk, such as red-legged frogs or um, barn swallows and uh, western toad. They all depend on having water available for breeding, and mating and all those things. And then when we have water moving across the landscape very quickly, as in a ditch, we often get erosion. That is, soil gets picked up and moved with the water, and it ends up being deposited in our lakes or in the ocean. And soil carries with it phosphorus, and phosphorus can contribute to algal blooms like we've been experiencing in the lakes in recent years.
0: And then when, um, if you... Rebuild the wetland. It has clearer than uh, I would imagine um, benefits for improving lake quality and water quality. It creates habitat. Does like, does it breed mosquitoes? <laughs>
5: <laughs> Tom Beebe Couser, my mentor, has a saying. It says, mosquitoes will check in. But they won't check out to a productive healthy wetland because there's so many critters in the wetland that depend on mosquitoes as their food source Uh, dragonfly larvae ducks frogs uh, fish you name it Um, barn swallows violet green swallows all of these species really depend on eating mosquitoes and so yes there will be mosquitoes breeding in wetlands however They won't become a problem, and wetlands will actually reduce the amount of mosquitoes around us. So where mosquitoes become a problem is if you have a bucket in your backyard or a pond that doesn't have any, for some reason, doesn't have any wildlife in it, then that's a mosquito problem.
0: Um, Or for some reason, by the ocean. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) This is where I live, and I've been really, really suffering. (laughs) Um, So, sorry if my my mind is in the gutters. Um, So, what are there benefits to farmers or to gardeners to have wetlands as well? Or is it just taking up what could be gardening space?
5: Absolutely, there are benefits. So, many farms, um, farmers will tell you that they have areas of their land that are just unproductive farmland because they're too wet. And um, so, luckily, these Folks who were doing uh, wetland drainage to create farmland, some of them were very, very good at it, and those ones, you won't find those wet spots. However, as we are all imperfect humans, um, imperfect wetland drainers have left clues to where wetlands could be restored. And so when we excavate soil to um, dig a, a pie dish, essentially, or a basin in a wetland, we can use that soil to improve the adjacent farmland and actually... Um, lift it up a little bit out of the
0: wetness and uh, create better growing spaces. And then if you don't have a farm, but rather just a yard and a garden, um, but you have issues with water running off or areas where there is a fair amount of water, um, can we take some of the wetland ideas and use them Uh, to make kind of small wetland ecosystems or something similar in our own yards and gardens? Absolutely. If you have
5: a ditch or a seasonal stream, um, yeah, you can reshape that into a rain garden or a bioswale and create little basins that could hold water sometimes or help to infiltrate water into your landscape. And in terms of capturing water, Um, If we have water running across the surface, we want to slow it down and sink it and store it in the in the soil. That's um, where it's most effective and will last the longest.
0: I um, I love that idea. I actually I think what I want is a whole workshop with you where we can each like um, make a plan for our own yards Um, because I, I see like where I am. Which is basically on rock, but the amount of water that streams off of it, and I've Mm. been, you know, in part through these folk university series, I've been learning little bits and getting little strategies for how to try to incorporate them, Um, and I, you know, but it often feels really complicated or really like, oh no, I have such a small scale of this, but it's also ironic, right, to have water coming off for so much of the year as we do on Cortez, just endless water, and then to try to figure out how to water a garden in August. Um, So I like the idea that I could get better. (laughs) So I promised also that I was going to ask some very self-serving questions. Um, But before I do, can you talk to me a little bit about your garden and what you're doing in your garden right now?
5: Well, this is my little break time right now. I've got, except for my, my basil, I've got all my spring summer stuff planted and I've got my winter veggies seeded and so I'm just waiting. I have a had a, like the last week I haven't been in my garden but I'm preparing winter garden beds now. Um, thinking about seeding or transplanting the winter brassicas at the end of June, um, seeding carrots and beets in mid-June, um, trying to get everything mulched, talk about conserving water and keeping all that water in the soil. And
0: weeding, <laughs> and we. I, I like how your idea of not of the in between time is actually a list so long that my eyes started bugging out, <laughs> and then I felt just a wee bit of panic, so I have to go and do some more forest meditation, uh, which is what we learned today. When you said that you already started your winter beds, what does that mean? Well, to be honest, my winter beds are a total
5: disaster. Of uh, so, my winter carrots, I'd seed mid to end June. And same with the winter beets, like more beginning of July. And, uh, so I'm in the next week or two, I'll be weeding those out, adding amendments, and then getting them ready for seeding.
0: So this kind of gets to what I'm trying to figure out in my garden right now. This is largely not because of me, but because I have had a, a young woman who's much smarter and better in the garden than I am living with me for this uh, entire spring, um, So, who's who's been really good. So for the first year, I have a garden that is producing something other than just nasturtiums. Um, um, and so all of a sudden, I need to harvest things like, early kale leaves. We have some peas, lettuce, things like that. Radish. I have an amazing bed of radish greens. And I realize I do not actually understand the principles of harvesting and how I start thinking about using these same beds or how I would harvest so that then I can plant more things. So can you talk about like when you're harvesting, how do you think about harvesting? How do I know how much is too much to take? Um, those kind of ideas. Do you have things that guide you?
5: A little bit. It's definitely um, specific to each vegetable. For lettuce, um, I just, I prefer to harvest the outer leaves. And so when I'm picking a salad, I'll go take, you know, one or two leaves off each lettuce and just kind of get them to continually grow. Uh, Radishes, you're harvesting them for greens or roots?
0: Well, I've been taking the greens, assuming that I could kind of endlessly take and cook the greens and the, and the root will still continue to grow.
5: I haven't experimented with that. So let me know how that goes. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> but once the radishes get to a certain size, most varieties don't hold in the ground that long. So I just kind of go through my radish or same with carrots or beets. And I pick out the ones that either look like they're too close and need to be thinned or that are the biggest.
0: And then I take them and I eat them. And then do I reseed?
5: Not. I wouldn't usually reseed in the same bed. Try to practice crop rotations. And so I would have another bed set aside. Or if I hadn't, say I had uh, planted half a bed, then I would plant the other half. But I would try to follow a radish crop with something, you know, I would mend the soil and then plant something
0: else. Like what? You've got to be really detailed with me. I'm not very smart with (laughs) gardening. Well, one
5: thing I'm experimenting with, this this is the first year I'm trying it, is doing um, a radish. This is a bit off topic of your question, but doing a radish crop that I would leave in the ground, cut back and kill, and then do a no-till seeding of carrots after. So maybe next year we can talk about that and how that works out. (laughs) Um, But usually I try to think of my first say I had a brand new garden, the first thing you want to plant is something that would fix nitrogen and build the soil. So like peas or beans or some kind of legume. Following that I would do something that's a bit more of a heavy feeder, say greens like brassicas or lettuces. And then following that I would do something that's fruiting. So tomatoes or squash. And each time I add some a new crop, I'm amending the soil in between adding compost or manure or whatever I have available
0: would that happen even in one one garden season like one year that you would do peas and beans then do greens or is that year after year when you're rotating through your beds
5: mostly year after year as you're rotating through the beds. so the final one would be a root crop because they're they need the least amount of bang um so carrots or beets or radishes yeah so what i try to do say my garlic is going to come out july I would try to put in something for winter in that spot after. So if I'm like going to do some winter lettuces in a cold frame or some winter kales or brassicas that I already had started and could hold off until then. Um, and so my carrots and beets are going in where I had my brass- my winter brassicas from last year, which are right now all flowering and the bees are all over them. And I'm just kind of letting them do that until I need to put the carrots and beets in. So I try to, s- I try to um, time... Certain crops that are um, complementary to what was growing before for the next seeding. That makes sense.
0: Sometimes gardening feels complicated, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, so and then you talked a little bit about mulching. So everybody that has given advice this year has has stressed. How important mulching is. So I, in my great exuberance, to do what I am told by my many folk university gardening instructors have mulched all of my beds mostly um, with like straw. No, maybe it's hay. Um hay and, has
5: seeds, straw doesn't.
0: Okay, straw. Uh-huh. So with straw, and then I sort of was looking it up, and it doesn't seem like most people choose straw. Um, so can we talk really detailed about what do you mulch with and kind of what you're looking for in an ideal mulch?
5: Yeah, I tend to veer away from straw (laughs) because straw is a byproduct of oats. And if you're not getting organic straw, you're likely getting straw that's been sprayed with glyphosate. And I think we all mostly know about glyphosate and Roundup and all those baddies, Uh, so I prefer what I can get locally if I can I try to do a lot of leaf collection in the fall and I try to mulch my beds really heavy in the fall so that in the spring I'm kind of moving mulch around so as I'm clearing one bed of the mulch over the winter I can put it on another bed that maybe might need mulch because there's young things coming up seaweed seaweed is one of my favorite mulches I just put it right on I don't rinse it Um, and seaweed is so full of micronutrients and really, really great, especially for things that will fruit like tomatoes or peppers. Um, it has a lot of potassium in it, which is helpful. Seaweed kind of, um, when you put it on, it dries out. So you might need to remulch with more seaweed or whatever you can get. Um, I also do recommend people try alfalfa, which is a little bit more expensive than straw. Um, but I've heard from the folks at, uh, you know, everyone knows Sharecare and Campbell River. I've heard from them that um, alfalfa is less likely to have been sprayed with Roundup because <clears throat> they're not harvesting the grain from it.
0: What about grass clippings? Sure.
5: Yeah. Grass clippings are great. If you have lawn, um, you don't want to put them on too thick because they can make a bit of a mat and start to get really hot. Um, even if you... You could either spread them out and let them um, dry out a bit, and then put them on, or uh, just put them straight on, but not too not too thick. Um, I'm experimenting this year, and I think my neighbor Sam is also experimenting with um, horsetail. I have a ton of horsetail in my garden, so much so that I feel like I'm never going to get rid of it. So I'm just chopping and dropping weeds. Weeds make a great mulch. I just chop and drop like. Rip them out, throw them on the bed, especially in the hot sun. They bake, they die, and all of the nutrients that the weeds are taking out of your garden are just going right back into place, composting
0: them in place. You should see the face that I'm making at Miranda when she's saying this. I am so (laughs) shocked. So, okay, now are there some standards around this? Like, I'm not sure I would put horsetail in my garden because I don't have any horsetail on my property.